1: Welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the magazine by visiting classical-music.com or to our interactive iPad edition by visiting itunes.com. BBC Music Magazine is now an official Apple Music curator and you can listen to our exclusive playlists by visiting applemusic.com slash bbcmm. Welcome to the relaunched BBC Music Magazine podcast. I'm Oliver Condy, the magazine's editor, and with me today are Deputy Editor Jeremy Pound, Reviews Editor Rebecca Franks, and Editorial Assistant Freya Parr. This time we're going to be doing things slightly differently, starting with a quick look at the music news that's piqued our interest over the last couple of weeks. Then we'll be discussing what's in this month's magazine, the features, the cover CD, the recommended recordings, and finally, we'll chat about some new recordings each of us has brought along. But first, it's time for a spot of news. Rebecca, what's caught your eye? this week?
2: Well there have been a lot of season announcements for orchestras and opera houses for what they've got coming up and one that particularly caught my eye and that's been in the LA Times and the New Yorker is the Los Angeles Philharmonic which has announced its 100th season and it's been described as the L- in the LA Times saying no orchestra has ever come close to the ambition of this centennial season. Seems to be the general agreement and it's a fantastic season because it has 54 commissions, 58 premieres, 61 comp- living composers. It's also got 21 female composers and 27 composers of colour. And there's, if you start looking at the makeup of concert programmes, it's still very much dominated in the US and in the UK by male composers. And this is just a really exciting season because it's managed to to open up what it's doing, but it hasn't If, you know, you still want to hear all the the composers from the classical canon, you know, they've got Esa Pekka Salonen conducting a Stravinsky festival, they've got Lang Lang playing Beethoven Piano Concerto, Zubin Mehta conducting Brahms. So it's kind of managed to do everything in this one season so I was just really excited about that.
1: And particularly in America where you rely on a lot of private funding rather than public funding you know uh, where the pressure would be from the individuals to program their favorite Brahms symphony you know this is this Mm. is actually quite an achievement to get the balance right.
3: Dare I say that that's the sort of program that only an orchestra which does actually have quite a sizable endowment (laughs) would risk doing.
2: And also I think an orchestra that's decided to make a commitment to looking at diversity. And I think they've decided to do that because I think these schedules are made so far in advance. You know, have artists who want to you want to hear your Brahms symphonies and you want to hear Stravinsky. So um, but they have made a commitment to say, okay, well, let's see how how we can open up the program.
0: It's inclusive without being sort of making a point of having- yeah. A female composer season or a people of colour season. And I like that one. Uh, just incorporate it
1: exactly. Mm. I'm, I'm always aware that um, a, a lot of orchestras in this country, again because of the uh, arts council funding, are actually pointing at their programme, saying, "Look, we've got female composers, we've got composers of, of a, you know different colour, different race." Um, rather than, as, as you mm. said, for incorporating it, making a natural part of their season. But I think that you know over the next few years that it will become more of a norm. Mm.
3: Hopefully. Jeremy, what have you brought along this month? Right, well, I'm going to start my my story with a little audio clue. Right, well, that was the choir of King's College, Cambridge, um, in 1999, performing Rachmaninoff's Vespers. Um, And this is linked into the news that Stephen Clearbury, who is the director of music at King's, is to leave in 2019 after what will have been then 37 years in post. He actually began in 1982. Just to put this in a little bit of context, I remember when I was a chorister way back when... um, my choir, New College Oxford, did a, a joint sort of joint supper with King's College and he was the choir master then. Now I am not that far off 50 <laughs> years old, just to give you an idea of just how long he's mm. been in post. Is that, the, is that the longest a
1: director of music has been in a
3: post? Surely. Oh, um, I don't That's know because Edward Higginbottom was at New College from 1976 to 2014, so you do the math. So yes, he was there even longer, 38 years. Right, so. yes.
2: <laughs> I think the thing is though, once you get these great posts and you can shape the choir and you know, it's such a fantastic chapel to to work with, and such great mm. voices. Where
3: do you go from there? Yeah. Well, these colleges are very well funded, and they, <laughs> the other thing is that they tend to leave the director of music alone, just to get on with it. You don't have That's the ideal unless you have occasionally a, a fussy chaplain who kind of wants to play around what, with what you're singing in chapel. Outside that, the sort of the stuff you're doing in concerts, etc you have a fairly kind of broad brush to do what you want, and so it's a nice post.
2: Although you did have to teach first year undergraduates, I can tell you, <laughs> having, having studied with them.
3: But 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 as, as as Richard
1: Morrison says in the magazine, coming up, um, it, it is a good excuse, I think, to to shake things up. I mean, fewer directors of music are organists these days. I mean, st- uh, Stephen Layton is a prime example over at. Trinity. Trinity yeah. um, and th- the post does not stipulate now that you have to play the organ. So, you know, mm-hmm. this is someone who can be a purely musical director and leave all the organ playing to the organ scholars,
3: which could be a good move forward. That's There's a whole host of, of candidates. Um, I'm not going to kind of go into them now. But I'd be interested to see if they go for one of the sort of younger ones who's working in one of the Oxford colleges already and have been working with male and female voices rather than just boys' mm. voices. Mm. So, for the likes of sort of Sarah MacDonald at Selwyn, for instance, might be a good choice, or Graham Ross, um, who's at Clare College, one of those. But things up. I have no idea who the next person will be, and I don't think anyone does really.
2: And it'll be quite interesting to see if they do take think about whether they're going to have girls singing in the choir as well and break with that tradition that they've had. At Kings, because a lot of other places are starting to think about that, maybe Kings will too. Mm.
3: I think it'll be very interesting, whatever happens. It there. is
1: a superb choir, though, still, isn't it? I mean, it really is quite something. Mm. Um, the, the treble sound, I think, is, is is extraordinary. I mean, it's a very clean cut sound, but I, I really, I really like it, and I, well, I think the, it's maintained.
3: I mean, yeah, I think he's done a remarkable job, really. And as you heard from that recording just there, I mean, the acoustic in Kings is second to none because it's unlike some college chapels which are actually quite small and you have to work really hard at the singing to actually get something out, um, it's not like that, it's room enough for that, but it's not like St Paul's where you can't do anything detailed because it just gets lost in this huge, great kind of Mm. wallowy sound. It's it's the perfect acoustic.
1: So talking of places of worship, uh, the story I've brought uh, is one, uh, is an interesting one actually. Um, Sajid Javid, the housing minister, has um, uh, basically noticed that people who move into areas still have the right pretty much to complain about noises coming from established music venues or churches, bell ringing practice, that sort of thing. Um, And basically they can put in force a noise abatement order and he's basically righting a wrong as he says in his own words Um, and basically it's now a lot tougher for people to move into an area, complain and stop for example the church clock chiming at night or the bell practice happening on a Thursday evening which I think is a good thing Um, obviously brass band practice comes into it and and no doubt a lot of the venues are pop and rock venues that, that are quite noisy but you know People don't do not have to fear, I think, mm. as much as they used to about being shut down.
2: That's interesting, especially if you do move somewhere, yeah, and they've got bell bell ringers and practice going on. I mean, that's part of part of a tradition, isn't it, as well? That I think if you preserving. have a problem
0: with it, it should be like when you're moving into a new area, you look at the schools, you look at the environment, you look at everything that's around, and if that's a serious priority to you, you don't have bell ringers on a Sunday. Then don't move that. <laughs> <it's just, laughs> yeah, it's the house.
3: It's the yeah. house buyer's responsibility. Exactly. You, just as you'd look at the size of the rooms and the sort yeah. of how many bathrooms and things you got, you actually look at the environment as well. And mm. It's quite right to it. It's absolutely. There've been one or two really unpleasant stories actually over the last four or five years mm. of people who've come in and thought they owned the place and actually tried to shut down, you know, as you say, bell rings from rehearsing on a Thursday evening or whatever it is. Mm. So I'm mm. delighted to see this one. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: I mean, that's you know. not to say that one shouldn't control antisocial noise. No. I mean, that, that's a different thing, a different you thing. know. Yeah. And should mean- and should the bell ringers bell ring at 11 o'clock at night? Well, of course, that's going to be unacceptable. But um, they don't. But they don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and as, as, you know, as, as I read someone uh, someone's letter who, who they wrote to the Financial Times, actually, uh, a few months ago and said, that I didn't move to the countryside for this. So people have a very, very warped view of, of what goes on in the countryside. Mm. I think they think that they're going to escape the city noise and mm. live in some kind that of really false city. <laughs> yeah. so, um, so, yes, good news all round for that one. Freya, what have you been reading about this this, this week?
0: Yeah, well, a big story. Um, Ireland has a new opera company. Um, no new opera sort of venue. It's a travelling company, but uh, it was announced actually back in 2010, but it's taken... Clearly, quite a while to come to fruition, um, but they've got some really big names um, and uh, quite a few. So they have a program with artistic partners who will help develop it and mm-hmm. send it across the world. And they've got an amazing lineup of shows. And they're hoping to even do the Ring Cycle, which the first production of it in Ireland since 1913, which is pretty amazing. So, yeah, and apparently they want to tailor all their performances to the venues that they visit, so small or large. So it's exciting. It's very dynamic and diverse. So.
3: It's a lovely story to read, actually, because mm. um, I remember over the years we've been on the magazine... On regular occasions we've been sort of reporting on the sorry tale of, of opera in Ireland and it's actually really starting to improve because Northern Ireland Opera is doing superb really stuff good. now it's um, got a really good reputation. Wexford has come on come into its own the Wexford Festival of course that's only for a certain period of the year yeah. so to actually have this kind of fest, um, company which is now travelling Irish National Opera right from Donegal all the way down to mm. Wexford it's just it's brilliant news and you say the the things have thrown their weight behind it. Are really, They're proper big names, so it's yeah, good.
2: I remember when we did that feature talking to musicians about what they would do if they had £10 million to spend <laughs> and Eilish Tynan, the singer, was saying, I want an opera company in Ireland, I want to nurture Irish talent and I want to bring in international artists. And actually, this seems to be fitting the bill.
3: The next question, of course, is are they going to get a, a nice new theatre, which would be phenomenal, but obviously yeah. that's a, a That's what they need 10 million, yeah. ten million, £10 million for, yeah, and more. Yeah. Yes.
2: And more. Yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. Quite. So that brings us to the end of our news um, items. So that brings us to the end of the news section, and now it's time to talk about what's in the latest magazine, the March issue of BBC Music Magazine with Paul Lewis on the cover. And before we talk about it, here's an extract from our cover CD, which also features Paul Lewis. Uh, we're going to hear a clip from Schnittke's Concerto for Piano and Strings.
3: That was Schnitka's Concerto for Piano and Strings, played by pianist Paul Lewis and the BBC Symphony Orchestra under Tadaki Otaka, which you can hear on our cover CD. Now, it's a fascinating cover CD this month because it revolves around Paul Lewis. And he has helped us choose um, for quite different composers, but it works superbly as a programme. So the works we have are Shostakovich's Piano Concerto Number no. One, or some people better know it as Shostakovich's Concerto for Trumpet and Piano. Um, Weber's Concertstück. Those are both for um, piano and orchestra, obviously. And then we have two solo works, Liszt's Funérailles and Au Cyprès de la Villa d'Este, number two. And then we round off with the Schnittke. So we have basically 150 years worth of music there, ranging from Weber is the earliest, through to Schnitke at the end. Now, there's what makes it really interesting is actually the two sets of composers were, were linked in a little way, because... Um, Liszt um, arranged Weber's Concertstück and also Schnitka was very highly influenced in his early career by Shostakovich. So it all works very well. It is, it is fascinating. And it actually,
1: what's great, as you said, is he's handpicked these works. Um, this is the sort of the, the, the Paul Lewis disc, disc that never was uh, and and, it, and now is. Um, so it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to hear him in something other than late romantic classical repertoire. Which is great,
3: and I would really urge people to to try and get to know the Schnitka because it's it will it'll defy your expectations because people think of him as being sort of a late Soviet difficult composer, but actually it's very lushly written, some lovely melodies in there. He was he was a very sort of multifaceted composer. You can hear that in this work. It's
0: quite approachable as well.
3: Very approachable. Yeah. yeah most terrific piece. Um, Talking of Paul Lewis,
1: he's on the cover of the magazine uh, saving Joseph Haydn, taking Haydn out of the box, giving it a bit of a push like he's done with Schubert and Beethoven I mean those Schubert and Beethoven uh, recordings that he's done for Harmonia Mundi have just been extraordinary uh, extraordinarily well played and well recorded and well received Um, and he's going to be doing the same over the next couple of years with Haydn, touring Haydn all over the world and also recording them again for Harmonia Mundi, so I'm, I'm delighted because I absolutely love of the Haydn piano sonatas. I mean, they're just full of so much wit and joy and surprise. Um, I, I, I'm going to be controversial here and so say I, I think I prefer them to the Mozart piano sonatas.
2: And we st- don't really hear enough Haydn. I don't think in symphony concerts anymore because I think because people are a bit worried about not playing it on period instruments and modern orchestras. I mean, you do hear it. The CBSO is playing quite a lot of Haydn, um, but yeah, and pianists as well tend to Mozart and Beethoven. So it'll mm. be fantastic to. Here, Paul has been completely immersed, as you say, touring around because he just, you know, just focuses in on one composer so that he gives it that real attention and
3: um, mm.
2: passion.
3: I'm not going to give too much about the cover disc away, but what I quite like about it is that his thoughts on concert programming is that. In Haydn, he'll often using Haydn, he'll often finish off with quite a, a jolly or humorous work. You don't have to have this major showpiece to round off a concert. You can actually finish off on a light note, for instance. Mm. It's, mm. That's quite interesting to
1: read his thoughts on that. Mm. And, and also, you know, because he's now one of the directors of the Leeds Piano Competition, he may yeah. set some very interesting programs for the competitors. You know, rather than say, oh, you have to do a, a Chopin Etude," or "You have to do a Liszt be Minor," whatever it is. You know, he could strip it back really, and 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 you know, really change things and and make the competition exciting in that sense. Yeah, definitely. So, Freya, um, there's also some interesting features on uh, some female composers in the magazine, tying in with International Women's Day on the 8th of March. Yes, indeed.
0: So, it's a great opportunity, International Women's Day, to explore some of these lesser-known composers, particularly, I mean, so we've, our main feature is on Florence Price – who was primarily composing around the beginning of the 20th century. Um, An African-American composer, wrote some amazing symphonies, um, and kind of towards the end of her life was finally getting the recognition she deserved. Um, In a similar way to Lily Boulanger, who is our Composer of the Month, whose life was tragically cut short. It seems like both of them were creating these incredible works that were then cut short by... Their sort of shorter lifespans, um, which is really devastating, but it's a great opportunity to actually learn more about them um, from very different backgrounds, but around the same similar time. And then we look at Fanny Mendelssohn, who's in our Building a Library with her string quartet, um, who was around much earlier, so very different lifestyle, but um, she she's less known for her string quartet works, but definitely. I think what I think
1: what's what's missing are great performances of some of this music, yeah. because actually Florence Price's music deserves better advocacy, uh, and I, I think a lot of these works um, have just been played poorly. Um, just to get recordings out there, and 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 then it's time that important orchestras and important labels took these pieces of music mm. and gave them the time.
3: Florence prices first and third symphonies would get so much airplay if there was decent recordings of them. The first one. Symphony number 1 is very kind of, it's got a real Vorjac feel to it. You can tell mm. that she was, they were influenced by the same kind of, same influences. And then the third one is actually quite folky and it's wonderful, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is. I heard part of the first symphony in concert, actually. Um, Chinake played it um, at, at the Southbank last year, but they only did the first movement, which was a real shame, actually, because mm. mm. I, I don't know why they didn't play the whole symphony. I don't know if there's a problem with getting hold of parts, although it had been recorded, so they must exist. But um, it would be great to hear the whole thing in concert because it would work so well that, you know, every time you, instead of programming, say, Rorzak's New World Symphony, if you replace some of those with... It's music which is that, just waiting
1: really, to be enjoyed. it yeah, really is. And not just orchestral music either. I mean, you know, as an organist, I was really interested in the fact that she was an organist herself and her organ pieces are terrific. Yeah, I mean, they're really fantastic post-romantic sort of 20th century style... Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, preludes. Um, uh, you know, sort of voluntaries, from, um, suites, um, a fantasy. I think um, it's no, they're terrific music.
2: Lily Boulanger. There are quite a few record. I mean, she wrote fewer. We have fewer surviving works, and there are good recordings of of her music. But even then, it you know, you don't hear it that often. I mean, mm. I know BBC Symphony Orchestra. They're doing a total immersion day on Lily and her sister Nadia Boulanger mm. next year. Um, but it'd be just, yeah, great to hear even more of them. Without good the recordings, hall. it's very rare that they. Mm. It's unlikely
0: that they're going
3: to. Though I should point out the the that string. with Fanny Mendelssohn, mm. half the point of us featuring it as uh, building a library piece mm. is that there are a couple of fantastically yeah. good recordings of the string quartet. Yes. Um, and particularly the one which which features here is actually coupled with two of Mendelssohn's Felix Mendelssohn's quartets, and it's a lovely disc because you can actually hear the way they. Sort of no of no spoiler alert. I'm not giving a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> I have not said who it is. You're have to buy the
1: magazine <laughs> to find out. So let's rec- let's move on to the recording of the month, and I think we should start with a clip first. Um, so what yes. are we going to hear?
2: We're going to hear the Allegro Moderato from Myaskovsky's Cello Sonata Number Two. So that was a clip from our recording of the month, which uh, features cellist Laura van der Heijden and pianist Petra Liminov. And it's, I think it's a wonderful disc. So she won BBC Young Musician in 2012 playing the Walton Concerto. And she was just 15 when she won that. And she's waited until now to make her debut recording. She's done on um, Champs Hill Records, who regularly turn out these really impressive projects and really support young artists and um, beautifully produced, beautifully recorded. And yeah, she's done a programme. So it's called 1948 Russian Works for Cello and Piano, and it features uh, Prokofiev Sonata in C, this Mayaskowski Sonata, and then five pieces by Yuri Shapourin and a short prelude by by Leodov. And I just like the fact that she's gone a little bit off the beaten track and taken us mm. in, a, you know, Prokofiev, name we all know, but she hasn't gone for the really obvious. She's really kind of thought about it in great detail and she's waited until she felt really ready to do this and like she had... Really, something to say with this music, and I think that just comes across beautifully. So that's why I decided to make it the recording of the month. I,
1: I love the confidence to actually, as you've just said, um, to put this program together as a debut disc. Though I think it's it's really brave, and I, I, yeah. I and I love her broad tone. I mean, it's it's so deep and rich. Um, I, I, I think it's a, a really, really fantastic disc.
2: Yeah, I think she's a very eloquent player, isn't she? Mm. And really the recording quality
0: is amazing. Mm. It's really clear. And it's it's a very full sound, and you really can get the best out of her. Mm. Yeah, like you say, her tone and it's very
2: rich. Mm.
0: It's lovely. Mm.
2: I think they do a really nice job. I think um, David and Mary ba- 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 Bauman, who run Champs Hill, make it such a supportive atmosphere for people going to record.
1: Yes. And when we mm. when I spoke
2: to Lara for the magazine, we got an interview with her in the magazine, and she was just saying that, you know, it was the whole thing was a really enjoyable experience which is kind of what you
3: want Hans- to hear Hans-
1: for a debate yeah. debut recording. Well, looking forward to um, uh, to reading about that in the March issue of the magazine. Um, so we're going to move now on to uh, the discs that we've all brought along. This is a, a first listen section of the podcast. Freya, what have you brought along this, this week?
0: Um, so I've brought Alexander Melnikov's Four Pianos, Four Pieces. So he... Basically, the premise of the disc is that he performs on pianos that are appropriate for the period and the composer. So I thought this might be a little gimmicky, but actually it's really varied in a very a splendid way and it's a very eclectic disc.
3: Um, Should we hear a clip before yes. we go on? So we're
0: going to hear a clip from it. the Schubert, um, Schubert fantasy in C major. that was Schubert's Fantasy in C major, um, played on a fortepiano from around 1828. Um, and I just love the percussive quality to it. And it sounds so warm and it's like the piano that you will learn to play on. But
3: How much do you find that you appreciate the differences between the pianos from hearing this disc?
0: I did in some. I personally wasn't a fan of the list. It was a, too heavy sounding, particularly when what it followed. What was it played on? It was played on a Bosendorfer. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it, just following the Chopin, which was so light, um, yeah. it just was a bit clumpy.
2: i got to agree. I didn't really like the Liszt piano. No. I no. adored the Chopin, the, the Erard, the 1837 yeah. piano, the real resonance and halo of colour you got. But... I didn't really like the Liszt piano
3: that much it's quite an interesting disc, though isn't it one mm. which has almost been crying out to be made this yeah. kind of whole idea of you can actually <laughs> I, hear the difference I'd like to see it live I'd child, like yeah. to see
1: this, this concert live actually because I think half the thing would be watching these pianos seeing these pianos yeah. I, mean, I don't know if mm. he's actually made a video of this
2: mm. um, uh, he did it at the Wigmore Hall but,
1: but he, he only did, did it with he, three he pianos. Did pianos didn't he rather than four <laughs> yeah. oh, all the pianos were on stage at the same time were they? I think so, and then sort they sort around. of switch yeah. them around. Because I, I, I think moving pianos on, off, on and off at uh, Wigmore is be quite nightmare. complicated. No, real nightmare, yeah. Um, but I, I was slightly disappointed, I have to say, with the Steinway at the end um, when I heard this disc. I mean, I, it, is, it is a very, very small point, but mm. I think it was the wrong repertoire to play on the Steinway for a start, and I think the Steinway does come off a little bit personality-less. Yeah, it was a strange Um, choice after all, everything that had gone before. absolutely.
0: It feels a little bit anticlimactic after all the Mm.
2: the varied pianos before. But I did like the idea and his playing is fantastic the whole way through, you know, he's such a fantastic pianist. Oh,
1: absolutely, and it reminds me of... um, uh, Who's the pianist that did the Schubert Impromptu's uh, on forte pianos um, Alex- and,
2: Alexei Lubimov yes
1: and he also did the Debussy Preludes on, on two, on different, two pianos. different pianos yep. you know it's, it's mm, such yeah. an interesting thing to do because mm. you play differently on different instruments uh, and you know the, the, these pieces take on such different hues and such different atmospheres
2: mm. Mm, definitely
1: Jeremy what have you brought on for
3: us to listen to right um, I'm going to let you listen to this first before I explain what it is <laughs> That was Mein Herr und mein Gott by Petrus Vasks, the Latvian composer and it was sung by the Latvian Radio Choir accompanied by Sinfonietta Riga under the baton of Sigvards Klava I've become very enthusiastic about the music of Vasque ever since I um, listened to René Capuçon's amazing um, uh, recording of his Distant Light Concerto um, a few years back. Um, and now this disc is on Ondine, and I actually reviewed it for the magazine for a, an in brief review in the magazine, and it has completely captured my imagination. There's five works on it, um, some accompanied by um, orchestra, string orchestra, uh, one work with organ. Um, and everyone I have played it to says it is stunningly beautiful. It mm. even stopped my family mid conversation the other day, which is saying quite something. Yeah. Um, uh, there's the two works from which, for me which are the really standout works are so that one and at the end, a work called The Fruit of Silence. But it is all hugely beautiful.
1: Yes, beautifully sung um, and beautifully played. But the, the, the orchestrations are, are really rich aren't they?
3: I mean, it's yes. It's so, well, cinematic almost. The whole thing reminds me a little bit of um, Arvo Pert. They have a very similar background actually. Vasks is Latvian whereas Pert is Estonian but, but they they both kind of grew up under Soviet Russia. Mm. Vasks had a miserable time. He had to join the Soviet army hated it. Um, and Then sort of so when Soviet Union disintegrated it was a bit of a liberation for him um, and his you could describe his music as minimalism, but it's not just that more of, you, of his m- music you listen to actually he stretches a lot beyond that. this is just a, this this bit sounds quite minimalist, but other stuff of his is not so much
2: mm. I really enjoyed this disc as well it was one that made me sort of soft in my tracks yeah.
3: Um, mm. yeah
1: unexpectedly so actually um because because the music seems quite simple uh but but it's it's more affecting than you think it's going to be if you see what I mean
3: yeah, yeah. doesn't do a great deal as, no. as you heard in that passage the actual the choir doesn't move an awful lot and actually most of the movement is in the strings underneath a bit like foray actually yeah and um, this, is,
1: this is the, the odd sort of surprising harmony that yeah. suddenly comes in you know the, the the layering of some of the harmonies is just so exquisitely done it's just yeah. very beautiful it's lovely stuff so i'm going to talk about uh my disc now uh it's actually a recording I reviewed for the brief notes pages in the magazine and it's the Britain and Hindemith violin concertos performed by Arabella Steinbacher with Berlin um, Radio Symphony Orchestra under Vladimir Jurovsky. absolutely mesmerising. The ensemble uh, is incredible. Um, Her sort of attack, her tone um, is just extraordinary and the colours that... Jorowski brings out from the Berlin Radio Symphony Orchestra is, is, is quite something. It works so well together. Let's hear uh, the second movement um, which is the Vivace. So we're going to hear the beginning of that. Such a wonderful crunchy
3: tone that she gets. It's really spiky play, isn't it? Mm. But really playful as well, somehow. Absolutely. How well does it go with the Hindemith violin concerto? Because, of course, Hindemith's a composer who doesn't get really sort of. Fair, fair treatment doesn't no, it no they're, they're quite they're, well they're not similar but they're, they're in a sort of similar style
1: and, and and she employs a very sort of similar approach as well it's very playful and, and very virtuosic um, Hindemith's obviously you know is a little bit more modernist but it's still very a very approachable concerto a wonderful discovery and again the Berlin Radio Symphony Orchestra and Steinbacher just work so well together I mean they, they sound as if they've been playing together for years and I don't know whether they have but that's what it sounds like um and There's recorded such
0: clarity uh, of sound, the, and the yes. playing is so present.
1: Yes, the recorded quality is, 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 is yeah. fantastic. They've got a superb set of engineers. Yeah, clearly,
2: mm. Pentatone is doing some really good things. Sort of, it's always been putting out some good things. They did that big Wagner cycle with Marek Janowski, but yes. it's sort of changed in recent years, and they're just really. Bringing on board lots of artists, nurturing the talent that they've got, and just coming up with some really fantastic recordings. They have care I mean, about every well, I mean,
1: Steinbach has been one of theirs um, for ages, actually. She's no, she's a part sort of the, of the nurtured, furniture, but, yeah. but and they've nurtured her. But they they're bringing on some. Um, they've just signed
3: up. Uh, well, they've signed up Pierre Mar, haven't
2: yeah, they? Elisa
3: Weilerstein. Elisa Weilerstein. So interested to, to know what. Remember Arabella Steinbeck who actually joined them when Julia Fisher moved over to Decca, and she was seen as a sort of natural replacement. And it's. It's work to treat. Mm-hmm. It has work to treat actually. Um, Rebecca. Yes. Your turn.
2: So I have brought along another cello disc <laughs> from another BBC young musician uh, Sheku canny Mason who won in 2016 playing the Shostakovich Cello Concerto Number no. 1 and he was signed up by Decca and has so he's taken quite a different approach in a way to, to Laura um, in that he's made his debut recording which is the one that I have brought along. And he is playing with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra and their conductor, Mirga Garazinite Tila. And I think we could hear an extract from that, um, from the Shostakovich, uh, from the Moderato. So that was the moderato from Shostakovich's first cello concerto. And it's the centerpiece of this al- album, which is called Inspiration. So it takes uh, Sheku Kanye Mason's kind of inspirations, his love of uh, Pablo Casals, of Rostropovich, uh, Jacqueline Dupre, uh, pieces that he played when he was a uh, younger cellist. And so we've got Sanson's Swans, Casals' Song of the Birds, I've got some Bob Marley and some Leonard Cohen as well arrangements. So he's taken quite a different approach to programming um, to uh, Lara van der Hayden. And it seems to have paid off because he has, uh, since it's been released, it's Entered the top 20 of the pop charts as well. so um,
1: He's been a lot of publicity for it, hasn't he, actually? He's been... He's been
2: they have done a good... They've everywhere. done a very <laughs> good PR thorough camp. job, haven't they? they have. Yes, they have.
1: But the, the, the um, Shostakovich was the concerto. He actually won the competition.
2: Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. And actually, I heard, him, I heard him play it live twice last year, once with the National Youth Orchestra, which was, was a good performance. And then I was at one of the performances up at Symphony Hall um, where they have taken some of this recording from. Mm. And it was just such a wonderful concert and it was packed out and he had really developed even in those like three months I think it was or maybe no it was longer than that maybe six months in between hearing and play and he'd really developed and matured even in that time and there are moments on the recording in the first movement where I don't think it quite comes off and it was somehow some of the tempo choices are a bit strange but Mm. Live, it sort of didn't seem to. I didn't notice that so much.
1: He's a very joyful player, isn't he? He's, oh, yeah. He's he's really in the moment.
2: Yeah, and I think um, that movement as well is very, very moving.
1: Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see where Universal, where Decker takes him.
3: Well, I think he might give us a little couple of clues in the magazine itself, actually, because we interviewed him for a Music to My Ears interview where they tell us about their favourite music. And I'm not going to give anything away, but he specifically singles out one composer who's not on this opening mm-hmm. disc, yeah. whose music he particularly is fond of, and I wonder if we might go in that direction. That direction. Again, you'll have to buy the magazine <laughs> to find out who it is. Exactly. Little teaser. <laughs>
1: um I think that uh, wraps up. Podcast for this month. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, we're going to be doing this podcast every month, so do catch us uh, when we'll be talking about the April issue next time. But we're going to leave you with a clip from our March issues cover disc, and we're going to lead out with a final few moments of Shostakovich's Piano Concerto No. 1, performed by Paul Lewis. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this BBC Music Magazine podcast, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at classical-music.com or simply head to iTunes.